Well, good morning and welcome. So glad to have you here, and we are gathered to praise the name of King Jesus. He is the Savior who has loved us, has come to us, and rescued us from our own sin. And in his name, I welcome you here today. A couple of things I want to make sure that you're aware of uh, in terms of, of things to participate in. Uh, after our worship service here, we are having our fellowship time in the Billings Room as, as normal uh, for Sunday afternoon. And uh, we're also having a Q&A time. Uh, so I'm um, wanting to keep you and the elders informed in terms of the classes that I've been taking uh, on, in the preaching program that I'm in. And so several of you have asked for updates on those sorts of things. And so today, uh, during the fellowship time, I'll be uh, answering uh, some of those questions and telling you a little bit more about how that's going. Uh, and and uh, it's really a selfish reason uh, in that I really want your prayer. And I found that if you know more about how to pray, that you'll probably be more inclined to pray. And so we want to encourage you to, to participate in that, to ask questions, and then to know how to pray and be active in praying uh, for me in this program. So that's today during fellowship time, uh, and then young adults uh, this evening at 6. And then I also would love to have you uh, have on your calendar and come to the prayer service on March 8th. So that sounds like it's still a far uh, away, but it's only a week from this Friday. So here uh, on that Friday the 8th uh, at 6.30, we'll be having a concert of prayer, time to, to pray together. And so let me, let me encourage you to do that. And then um, you'll see in the announcements that we are still in need of someone for the nursery staff. And so let me encourage you, it's, it's very easy to hear things like this and say, okay, I know that that's not me, uh, but uh, then it must not be a, a, anything that I need to do with. So everyone here can be praying for God to provide uh, a nursery staff member, someone who'd be here uh, consistently on Sunday mornings, and so that you can read more about that. But let me encourage you to be in prayer, but also to, for everyone here to, or watching online, who is someone that you know who might be able to do that? Uh, it may be somebody that, that uh, you know from years ago. Uh, it may be someone that used to attend uh, here at FCCW and has, has not been in attendance for five years or ten years or, or more. Uh, it may be uh, someone that, that you know who helped your own kids or, or grandkids. But to take a few moments and think about who do I know uh, who might be uh, able to, to help in that, and then have them uh, come and talk to Carl. Uh, and again, the, the information is, is there. And then the last thing I wanted to point out is, is that we're just a month away from Easter. This is the, the last Sunday in February, and Easter this year is the last Sunday in March. And so to be praying about and thinking about who you can invite. Uh, Easter is one of those uh, great times where people, even that you've been inviting to church for 10 or 20 years, uh, don't feel uh, like you're harping on them if you invite them to Easter. Uh, so that would be a great thing to, to invite folks to come and participate in the Easter service. Uh, and so let me encourage you to be in prayer and, and doing so. Let's take a few moments now and prepare our hearts to worship our risen God. Thank you.
Please stand with me for the call to worship. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. O Lord God, we do thank you and give you our praise. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would move now within us to enliven us, to embolden us, to give us vigor in singing your praises. And that, Lord, not only would that be reflected in our volume, but also in our joy. Lord, we pray that you would make us more and more a people who delight in giving you praise. So we ask now that you would do this, for it's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Let's sing together hymn number 165, Ye Servants of God, Your Master Proclaim. Let's sing together. Thank you. You may be seated. We just sang these words. Then let us adore and give him, that is God, his right, all glory and power, wisdom and might, all honor and blessing with angels above. One of the, the realities that we face every Sunday morning as we gather and sing him these sorts of things is also the way that that reveals to us that we haven't been doing that 
all the week long. We haven't been adoring and praising and delighting in him and giving him all that he's due, and he is due all praise. And so now we come to a time of repentance and confession, of acknowledging what we have not done that we should. And so let me encourage you to, to not just kind of go through the motions of this, but to, to take heart in not only how we've failed to do what we should, but how Jesus Christ did all of these things fully and perfectly, wonderfully, that we might join in with him. God warns us, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. It also provides the wonderful truth found only in Christ, saying, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In humility and faith, let us confess our sins to God. This morning, we're using the prayer of Martin Luther as a way of doing this. Please join me as we pray. O Lord, merciful and mighty, we unworthy sinners come to you in humble repentance and confess how we have transgressed your holy law. We are guilty of sins of omission and commission, evil thoughts, improper words, and wrong deeds. Forgive our iniquity and shortcomings for the sake of the suffering and death of our Savior Jesus Christ. Let his obedience cover our disobedience. Let his righteousness atone for our unrighteousness. Great God and helper, you alone can forgive. With all our hearts, we thank you for your boundless mercy. Grant us grace with which we might accept your gift of forgiveness with true faith and look upon the word of pardon as a message coming from you, assuring us and consoling our hearts before you. Let us treasure your forgiveness and freely extend it to others by the power of your resurrection. We pray in the name of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please take a moment now to pray silently before the Lord. Having confessed our sins, hear now the pardon of God. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive them all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. Praise be to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your gracious forgiveness, for the pardon that you have not only proclaimed but secured, Lord Jesus, in your perfect life and your 
sacrificial death on the cross. Lord, that in your resurrection, the Father has proclaimed that your sacrifice is sufficient, that his wrath towards us is done, that for all who are in you, Lord Christ, there is no longer wrath, but delight. O oh Lord, we praise you. Having received such a great forgiveness, Lord, we pray that you would make us far more gracious to others, far more quick to listen to them rather than seeking to be heard and understood. Lord, we would, that you, Holy Spirit, would work in us in such a way that we would respond to others, Lord Christ, as you have responded to us. That we would evidence the great forgiveness that you have given to us through the way that we forgive others. Lord, we also lift up to you all those who are sick and hurting, those who are confused and discouraged, Lord, we pray for those in need here in our congregation and in our families and our neighborhoods. Pray, Lord God, that you would work through us and through your people to bring hope and healing, to bring encouragement and joy in your name, Lord Christ. We pray particularly for those battling various illnesses and diseases. We pray for Mike and Pam Burnett and ask that you would comfort and strengthen them, that you would remove all the cancer from Mike's body and, and all of the, the fear and doubt from his mind and heart. Lord, we pray that you would, through this process of cancer, make him more like you, Lord Christ. And we promise to give you the praise and thanks for it. Be with Pam as she cares for and helps him. Lord, help us as a community of faith to come alongside them so that they don't have to walk this path alone. Lord, we ask that you would continue in many others who need healing from surgeries or illnesses. We think of Michael and Tom, many others that are recovering, Father, from various different illnesses. We pray, Lord, that you would provide those who need work with both the ability and the opportunity to do so, or that you would provide housing and food for all those who need it, and that you would help us to come alongside those truly in need minister to them in your name, Lord Christ. For it's in that great name that we pray. Amen. This time the ushers will come and will receive the offering. Let me encourage you to give joyfully unto the Lord who is so generously given to us.
Lord God, we do thank you that you are the one who will win the battle. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to be those not only saved by you, but who joyfully serve you as king. We pray that you would use these tithes and offerings and various gifts to the extension of your kingdom here on earth, that it might be more and more like it is in heaven. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're preaching through uh, the book of Mark, and one of the things that we're seeing in the first half of Mark especially is that he's, he's keyed in on the identity of Jesus, that Jesus' title is Christ, and we've been looking at some of what that means, and the um, affirmation of faith this morning is from the Heidelberg Catechism uh, that's a wonderful um, uh, repository of biblical truth, uh, and it has these questions dealing particularly with what Christ means, who that, that is, how that's describing Jesus, and then what does it mean for us to take on that title as Christ ones or Christians? And so uh, please read with me the answers to these two questions that are printed in your order of worship in bold. Why is Jesus called Christ, meaning anointed? Because he has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who fully reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our deliverance. Our only high priest who has delivered us by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually pleads our cause with the Father, and our eternal King, who governs us by his word and spirit, and who guards us and keeps us in the freedom he has won for us. Why are you called a Christian? Because by faith I am a member of Christ, and so I share in his anointing. I am anointed to confess his name, to present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. Did you, did you hear that? To reign together with Christ over all of creation for eternity. How often we sell the gospel so far short of what God himself has described it to be. Let's stand together for our credo song, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord of Hosts.
please remain standing for the reading of God's holy and errant word. This from Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2, I'll begin verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, that is in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Praise be to God. Let's sing together in Christ alone. The words and music are on the insert in your order of worship. alone my hope is found he is my light my strength my song this cornerstone this solid ground firm through the fiercest drought and storm what heights of love what depths of peace when fears are still when striving cease my comforter my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid, here in the death of Christ I live. Precious blood of Christ. 
is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Praise be to Christ. Thank you. You may be seated. Please turn with me to the Gospel of Mark in your pew Bible that begins on page 836. Page 836, the Gospel of Mark. Again, page 836 in your pew Bible. We're looking together at Mark's gospel. I'll begin this morning in verse 21 of chapter 1. Mark 1, 21. This is the holy and errant word of God. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. The unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This is God's holy and errant word and we praise him for it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the way in which you raised up John Mark, that you took him out of his sin and out of his blindness, out of his spiritual death, and gave him life and called him to be yours. And then not only that, but wonder of wonder that you would call him, fill him with your spirit, and equip him to write this gospel account that you, almighty God, have preserved through the years and used it of, to great benefit to your people. And so, Holy Spirit, we, we pray that you would continue to use this, your word, to great effect in us. Change us. Reshape us. 
make us more and more like you, Lord Christ. Help us to not only to receive it as the word of God, but also to submit ourselves to it, our minds and our hearts and our wills, that this might define who we are and the way that we serve you as you truly are. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's a truism of empires and kingdoms that no king can effectively rule his kingdom while his enemies are within the kingdom and at freedom to wreak havoc. That any king worth anything controls his kingdom by conquering his enemies, restraining those who would do harm to his kingdom and his people. Well, no less than Alexander the Great understood this, and in fact, when he took over from his father, Philip of Macedon, there was this ongoing hatred by the Greeks for the Persians and all of the atrocities that the Persians had for decades been heaping on the Greeks. And so Alexander amassed a great army and set out for Persia. Well, to, to get there from Greece, you've got to go down through what's modern-day Turkey and down through uh, northern Israel before you're able to to hang a left and and head, uh, continue heading east to take on the Persians. And so that's exactly what Alexander the Great was doing. And as he made that turn, he realized that there was this little island nation, Tyre. Sounds like the tires on your car, but spelled with a Y instead of an I. This island nation of Tyre that sits right off the coast of Phoenicia in northern Israel. But while they were a small island nation, they had quite a navy. And he knew that if he turned to go fight the Persians, that it would leave Tyre in his rear where they could wreak all kinds of havoc because, again, an elementary thing of warfare is to not have war on both fronts, but to keep it on one front all in front of you. The problem, of course, was that Alexander had raised an army to fight the Persians on land, and that's what he had focused on, and so he didn't have the navy at his command to take on Tyre right at that time. So, he commanded all of his troops to bring rocks and stones of any size and to put them in the ocean, in the sea there between Phoenicia and Tyre. And by the thousands and the ten thousands, they brought pebbles and stones and rocks and boulders and they kept piling stones and rocks and boulders until they were able to walk across and conquer Tyre, and then turn their attention to the Persians. A king 
needs wisdom and power to rule his kingdom and so care for his people. This portion that we've come to in Mark is still part of the introduction. It's still the first chapter. It's still helping us to see who Jesus is. And while it does not use the title king specifically to Jesus, what it tells us is is that his kingdom has come in the passage that we read last week. And what we see Mark doing is not just telling us King Jesus did this and then King Jesus did that, but showing us through the things that Jesus is doing how he is the king with all authority. And so in this passage, we're going to look at these three things. First, from verses 21 and 22, how Jesus teaches with astonishing authority. It's actually part of the the larger passage. He's showing Jesus' authority in his teaching, in his Uh, being able to command demons and in his healing diseases. But we've just got the first two in this passage. So first, Jesus teaches with astonishing authority. Second, in verses 23 to 26, how Jesus is the Holy One of God who has come to judge the earth. And third, how King Jesus is reclaiming his kingdom from Satan and his minions. Let's look at this first thing, that Jesus teaches with astonishing authority. In verses 21 and 22, as we've read, it says, They they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. The first thing that we find with Mark explaining this is is that he gives us a geographic reference. He's already told us that Jesus was there on the Sea of 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 Galilee, and he's called his first four uh, disciples. But then it, it talks about them going into Capernaum. That Capernaum was a town of some size that was there on the north of the Sea of Galilee. And they go from beside the sea and kind of in the outer reaches of the, the town of Capernaum into Capernaum itself. And he's using these Old Testament markers, as we already saw with Galilee last week, now with Capernaum. Capernaum is named after the Old Testament prophet Nahum. And this is one of the ways that we're seeing Mark in just a few word or even just a word here, the, the name of the city. Because again, he doesn't have to name Capernaum. He, he does so as a marker to, to remind us of Nahum. And again, the people to whom Mark is talking with, even the Gentiles, were predominantly God-fearers who had been studying the scriptures of the Jews for years. And so the mention of Capernaum brings to mind Nahum and his work as a prophet against Nineveh, the capital of Assyria which, again, we saw him just in the previous passage talk about making his disciples fishers of men. It was the Assyrians who were the primary ones who would take their captives captive in this charming way. Yes, heavy sarcasm. They would hook them. What does that mean? They devised fish hooks for men. And these iron hooks would go in through your cheek and through your jaw 
that they could then attach to a chain and drag you away from your home to wherever you were going to go serve them in slavery. And it was Nahum, the prophet, who had prophesied against Assyria, against their horrific ways that they had committed these atrocities against Israel and, and God's people. And so he sets the stage, not only with talking about how they're going into the town of Capernaum, but notice how he piles up these other one-word descriptions to talk, tell us where he is. He says, immediately on the Sabbath. What is the Sabbath day? It's the day by God's law that his people were to rest, to focus on their worship of the God of the Bible. So they're in Capernaum, that's a town in the Promised Land, on the Sabbath, and he enters into a synagogue. What's a synagogue? It's the place where God's word was taught and read, and God's people worshiped him. It tells us that Jesus does all these things and that he was teaching. Again, these are all things to set the stage for us to see through Jesus' actions his astonishing authority. Here, teaching the word of God is the very one who spoke through the prophets. He is, as John's gospel describes him, the word himself. Can you imagine being there at the synagogue and hearing Jesus teach? Well, when I called Moses, this is what I told him. When I raised up my prophet Isaiah, this is what I wanted him to say to my people and why. King Jesus teaches with authority. And he contrasts that with the scribes. Now, many of the commentators in, in our day will use this to, to, to belittle the scribes. And I don't think that's what Mark is doing at all. I, I don't think that the, the emphasis is here is on, well, the scribes are just, you know, many of them uh, unregenerate. They, they don't even understand the word that they're teaching. No, I think that it is simply that he is contrasting the king with all of those that he has called to his purposes. The, it's the difference between those that God has gifted to preach and teach and the God who is the one who gives those gifts for his people. Here, God himself is teaching his word to his people. And then it has this very interesting word that it uses uh, describing the people's response to his teaching. And it says that as Jesus was teaching with authority that, um, sorry, just lost my place. Sorry. As Jesus is teaching, it says that the people were astonished with his teaching. Uh, the, the term that's, that's used there is a strong one, and it, it means more, much more than just surprise. It has the connotation of terror. That as Jesus is teaching, they were astonished. It, it, it has this, this connotation of being struck. 
It's like his words were a, a bullwhip smacking them in the face. They were astonished. This is incredible, and they find themselves dumbfounded because of his teaching. Well, why? Why would that be the response of God's people hearing the God who they've gathered to worship teaching his word? It is because that this God who is teaching his word terrifies us because he sees right through us. They had the same problem at their synagogue that we often have at our church. You, you put on your Sunday finest, you, you, you pray yourself up, you confess all your sins, you come with your best, and, and we gather together to a God who welcomes us into his throne room, but then sees right into our hearts and knows every wicked way within us. That as wondrous as it is to hear this teaching, that it is also terrifying. So as thinking about and praying this through this week, uh, I had this funny image of my high school band director. Yes, in, in high school, I was a, a, a band geek, and, and uh, not only in the regular band, but in the marching band. And, and our marching band director was a very imposing man, but he was a fantastic musician. It just it amazed me that we would be playing a particular song and he would leave from up front and, and walk around and just pick up one of the instruments that somebody was, was playing and say, no, no, no. And he'd point to the measure and say, it's not what you just played. And then he'd, he'd pick up that instrument and play it the way that it was, it was written in the music. Now, I, I have through my life played four or five different instruments none of them well, but certainly not but one that, that I could play well enough in the marching band to, to be passable. And here he could just, it didn't matter, oboe, trumpet, trombone, bass, you know, he'd, he'd pick them up and play exactly the way that, that the music was written. And, and it, was, it was wondrous but also terrifying. It was wonderful because when the, when the swaggering trumpets would, would you know, kind of get full of themselves, he'd knock them down a peg or two. I remember this, this one guy in particular who was, I mean, he was the consummate trumpet player, first chair, first seat. And when he went out onto, onto the marching uh, field, you know, we all were wearing uh, silly little hats with, with plumes on top, but you were supposed to wear them with the chin strap underneath and, and have them flat, right? So that everybody looks the same out on the, on the football field. Well, he, of course, would undo the, the, the chin strap and cock it back so. And he would, he would kind of swagger out and get his trumpet. And, and he, you know, he had a certain way of standing and a certain way of playing. And he thought he was all that. I'll never forget one time where he had been, you know, kind of strutting along and, and got something wrong. In, in the music. And the band director stops everyone, says, freeze. He walks out to the trumpet player, knocks his hat off, and then picks it up and puts it on, on his head, cocks it back, stood there, looked exactly like the trumpet player. 
with all of his swagger. And then he exaggerated the mistake the trumpet player had just made. Right? Some of you as, as instrumentalists are, are dying, right? Because if it was, he, he, he went, you know, the, the band player played it like, you know, he really showed everyone there exactly what the trumpet player had just screwed up. With all the swagger and all, you know, and then he tosses, he, he hands back the trumpet and tosses the, the uh, hat to him and says, put on the chin strap and play it right. Right? And all the rest of us, what are we doing? Yeah! Right? Got his. But you see, Jesus is not just able to play all the instruments. He's created music. He's created the very air in which the sound waves resonate so that we can hear. He's the one who's made every one of the people who were there. And so his authority is terrifying. Because, yes, he can call out those who are, in our eyes, the real problem. But he also sees every one of our mistakes as well. The people see Jesus' astonishing authority, and it's terrifying because they are utterly revealed. Second, he is the Holy One of God who has come to judge the earth. Verses 23 through 26 say this, And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying with a loud voice came out of him. Now, again, we can read right through that, and if we've read the Gospels before, we know that there are demons that, that Jesus casts out. And so it's one of those things that sometimes we become callous to, and we don't hear it with new ears. But remember what we just saw in verses 21 and 22. They are not only in the Holy Land, they are in Capernaum, the home of Nahum, who God used to prophesy the destruction of all of these evil Assyrians. They're not only there in the Promised Land and in Capernaum, but it is on the Sabbath, the holy day, and they're in the synagogue, the holy place, reading the Word of God, the Holy Bible. And it is there that then the scripture simply says, and there was an, a man with an unclean spirit. What? What is a demon doing here? It, it's, it is absolutely remarkable. And yet it is communicated as, oh yeah. You know, we've, We've got the young couple that's just married. We've got the, the older couple that's celebrating their 50th anniversary. That's great. We've got, you know, the, the family with a bunch of kids. We've got the family with just a few kids. We've got the, oh, and there's uh, Harold with the demon, of course. And there's, you know, and you go, what? Wait, wait. Harold with the demon? Why is Harold with the demon in, in the worship service for the holy God? Notice, he doesn't call him a demon, Mark 
refers to him three times in this text as the unclean spirit. You're in the Holy Land, the place that is to be ritually clean, among God's holy people, hearing the holy word of God from the Holy One of God himself. And here is an unclean spirit. Part of what Mark is, we're going to see all throughout the gospel, is that he's talking about the king who's come to restore his kingdom because the earth is a wreck. It's a wilderness. It's not as it should be. And immediately, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. This is striking, but then it gets even more so. The demon screams at Jesus. What are you doing here? How, how dare you? It, it's like if you come home to your home and find a burglar there taking all of your stuff, leaving everything a wreck, and then he has the audacity to turn around and say, what are you doing here? Well, it's my house. What are you doing here? You see, that's exactly what Mark is painting the picture for us to see. Jesus is the king who has returned to his kingdom. And he finds the house a wreck. He finds unclean spirits just normally seen as, well, just part of what you see on an ordinary Sabbath day in the synagogue. In fear, this demon screams, have, have you come to destroy us? You see, the demon knows very well what Jesus has said he will do. It, it's, it's not a mystery to the, to the demons. They've heard the prophets of God proclaiming the word of God to his people for millennia. And that the Messiah will come. And that when the Messiah comes, evil will be vanquished and the king will set his kingdom right. And so the demon recognizes him, of course. Now, let me also just say as an aside, when we go through the Gospels, you see demons everywhere. I mean, we're, we're still in the first half of the first chapter, and, and here we've, we've run smack into a demon confronting Jesus. And so a lot of times folks will look at that and say either it, it's just nonsensical, right? That's just not, that's, that's not reality. That's, there's not a demon under every bush. There's not, a, you know, everywhere you turn around, you know, they're, they're not demons. But I want you to see in the, in the scope of the whole scripture, from Genesis to the maps, that, that what we find is a concentration of demonic supernatural powers where? Where Jesus is. Right? The enemy concentrates on the, on the point of the spear, where, where Jesus is. Now, 
there is demonic and supernatural activity in the Old Testament. There is demonic and supernatural uh, activity after Jesus' resurrection and ascension to, to the right hand of the Father. But nowhere near do we find it as concentrated as in the Gospels. And that's because that's where Jesus is, on this planet, active. This is critical time. This is go time. When the demons actually think that they can upend God's plans. It's delusional, it's crazy, and that's exactly what sin is. Disbelieving the God of the universe. Thinking, I know better, and I can do better than the King of Kings. But it's just not so. In a vain attempt at defense, he says, I know who you are, you're the Holy One of God. And we find this, again, all throughout the scripture, that, that knowing the name of your opponent gives you a, a spiritual advantage. And so the demon thinks because he knows who Jesus is and he calls him out by name, that that's going to give him the upper hand. What does Jesus do? Oh my goodness, he knows who I am. He's going to say it and, and then everybody's going to know and it's going to throw off my plan. No. Look at 25. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. You know, we oftentimes think of this battle with evil as, as if you know, it's touch and go. You know, God's, God's going at it with, with Satan and all the, the demonic forces. And you know, I, I sure hope God gets the upper hand and, and can win this thing. It, it's never even a match. Jesus speaks the word, rebukes him, and says, come out of him. And the demon's done. There are all kinds of ways in which we don't understand the way in which God has designed redemption to work out. Why does he allow the things to happen that he does? Why does he allow Satan the authority that he allows him? I mean, Book of Job, the whole thing is God allowing Satan to, to have at Job. You can do whatever you want to him, just don't take his life. And he does all of that ultimately for Job's good. That Job comes out of the book of Job more like Christ. More worshiping God in spirit and truth and celebrating him than he goes in. And God is greatly glorified through it. The, the demon's best efforts don't get him anything. But we learn something very important from the demon's expression. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. He knows that God is going to destroy him. Where does this Holy One of God title come from? You'll find it in Isaiah 55, chapter, or chapter 55, verse 5. The Lord your God, even the Holy One of God, or the Holy One of Israel. It is a divine title. He is equating Jesus with God. And he knows that the Holy One of God is the one who will judge Satan and all his followers. Jesus' restoration of his people in mercy will coincide with his judging evil. 
in destruction. And so Mark is helping us to see who Jesus is, the Holy One of God, who's come to judge the earth. The third thing that we see is that King Jesus is reclaiming his kingdom from Satan himself, that this demon is a representative, that, that Mark gives us this particular encounter, not just because he's chronicling everything chronologically, and this is what happens at 847, and then this is what happens at 849, and, and going through that. He's telling us these things, select things. There's, John says if, if you were to write down everything that Jesus accomplished, the, all the books in the world couldn't contain it. So Mark is very methodically recording for us these things that summarize the ministry of Jesus, of showing us his authority in both teaching and in commanding demons. So in verse 27 it says, And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. You see how Mark is summarizing what, what he's just talked about. His astonishing authority in teaching and his judging the, the demons as the Holy One of God. That all of these things are underscoring who Jesus is as the Christ, the Son of God. It says again that the people were all amazed. It's a different word, but it's got a lot of the same connotation as what we saw earlier in astonishment. That they were amazed, that they, they, they couldn't get their jaw up off of the ground. That, that, that they were stupefied in what they witnessed and couldn't get over it. And so then they question among themselves. I love that expression of all the, what, what was that? Did you see this? Did you see that? They're saying to themselves, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And again, notice how those two things are put together. The teaching with authority and the commanding the, the unclean spirits. Everything this guy says happens. He teaches as one who's not just read and studied this stuff, but who's done it, who's made it, who commands the light to be, and then the stars come into existence. His authority is seen in both of these things, through what he is teaching and through what he is doing. So remember the, the band director who takes down the, the trumpet a peg or two? Well, in seeing Jesus as this one with authority, as the one who is come and is giving notice to Satan, I've, I've allowed you here for a time for my purposes, but that's coming to an end. I've, I've allowed your swagger, but it's not going to stand. The demons are parading around, strutting as if they own the place. And Jesus reminds them, this is mine. My people are mine. The time of your desecrating them 
is coming to an end. The king has come to replace and reclaim his kingdom. Your days are numbered. And so Jesus' rebuke not only terrifies the demons, but it's followed by a nervous hush. I, well, um, I, I think I'm part of God's people. I, I, I think I'm happy that the king has come because he's my king. But they're encountering a king who is not elected. A king who does not take requests about how he's going to run his kingdom. And quite frankly, it's terrifying. You see, because following a king doesn't just mean believing in him. It means submitting to him. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And for far too many of us, we have a, we have a Jesus of our own imagination. And we follow him in the things that are convenient, but not in everything of what he says. As we go through the book of Mark, we're going to be looking more and more intently on everything that our king commands and asking the Holy Spirit to enable us to submit to him in those things. Because he's the king and we are not. The last thing that it says here is after all these things, at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. It's a very interesting phrase that he would use that his fame spread. Not just that people knew about him. It wasn't just that, that the whispering and the, the gossip stuff went, went around. But it says that his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. It's the same idea as when King Solomon, who prayed for God to give him wisdom to lead his people well that God caused not only for Solomon's wealth to increase, but also his fame to spread throughout all the earth. That when you have a good king who's ruling and reigning as he should, who is protecting and preserving his people and conquering his and our enemies, that king's fame spreads. And so it is with Christ that more and more people are finding out there is an absolute king. He knows what he's talking about, and his actions support what he's saying. So the question is, here, his fame spreads everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. What about Woodstock? What about the Upper Valley? What about in your neighborhood? Are you helping to spread the fame of Christ? And again, we, we spread the fame of all kinds of things. I mean, we, we find a new dishwasher 
detergent and that works for and we're all excited and telling people oh you got to try this this is awesome are we doing that with Christ do do people learn of Christ's fame because we understand ourselves to be his subjects joyfully submitted to him and telling everyone about the king who has come Jesus is this long-awaited Holy One of God that Isaiah prophesied about. There is no greater comfort to God's people than the coming of the King. But there's also no greater terror for those who are opposed to him than the reality of his coming. Let us be those longing for his return. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are the king and that in the gospel of Mark you show us time and again what your identity really means that you are utterly and totally in command that you call your people to joyfully submit to you and that it's for our good that you are doing that in protecting us from the demonic and spiritual forces who would destroy us in a second if they could. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see you as you truly are and to love you as you so wonderfully deserve. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing hymn number 92, A Mighty Fortress is Our God.
Christ's kingdom is forever. The king has come. He's inaugurated his kingdom. He is gathering his people to himself. He's gone to prepare a place for us, and he will return again to call us by name, where we will rule and reign with him forever. And now, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, says the Lord, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Praise be to God. Thank you and amen. Take a seat for a moment. Now, you may think, oh, Pastor, I've heard all that. I, I know that. That's, that's why I'm here is because I love Jesus, and I know he's the king, and I know he's coming back. That, that's fantastic. But God has called you here this morning that you might hear his word and through it be changed. So what are those things that you need to hear? Don't let them just pass you by. Continue to think on them, pray on them. There are areas for every one of us where, not, where we are not submitted to Christ fully as our Lord and King. What are those areas for you? Let's give those to Christ. Amen? Amen. Go in his peace.